Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a message from our sermon series in Isaiah. Good singing today. Great singing today. You know how it works? Those who sing the best, they sing the best because they love Jesus the most. And you know how it works? Jesus even said this. She loves me much because she has been forgiven much. They sing best who love Jesus most, and they love Jesus most who have been forgiven most. Which brings it back around. It's a sort of wonky way of saying it, but the best singers are the best sinners, the biggest sinners, (laughs) the biggest sinners. Well, if you love Jesus most because you've been forgiven much, it's not necessarily that you committed a higher number of sins. We're all as big a sinners as we could be. But you love Jesus more when you realize, realize what it is that Jesus has delivered you from, see? I'm going to preach to you this morning about sin for a long time, and I'm not going to let up. But this is why. Because the one who's been forgiven much loves much. This is why. This is why this message is important. When it comes to the doctrine of sin, the reality of our sin and its depth, the measure of God's love for us is the measure of how much we have, or one of the measures of God's love for us is the measure of how we have sinned against Him. And we see that index. Another measure of God's love for us in 1 John is the price that He has paid to atone for our sin. So you see the index of high and low. The index for measuring the greatness of God's grace, the index for measuring the marvelous height of God's love is the measure of the depth to which you can measure our depravity. The further down you go into owning your own sin, then the more undeserving of God's grace you are and the higher you can lift a a song of praise and glory to God and God alone for what He has done. Higher the love of God and the grace of God extends into your experience for the lower you go into understanding your sin. Those who sing best, love best, and those who love most are those who have been forgiven most, which is all another way of saying that understanding sin and not passing over sin lightly is is the way to a joyful Christian life. It's the way to sing sing from, from, from your tiptoes and from the bottom of your lungs and to live with that kind of praise in your life and in your step as you walk through life. So we want to read together from Isaiah chapter 1. And as we read this, let the images strike you. Isaiah says that this earth has big ears sticking out the sides of it. Isaiah says that God's royal, noble people are mules and donkeys. 
Isaiah says that you don't just have a black eye. You have bruises and sores from the bottom of your feet to the top of your head. And he says that your security is like a little broken down shack in a cucumber field. Marvelous, the, the illustrations that Isaiah uses to convince us of our sinfulness. So we're going to read together from Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. And as we prepare to read God's word, let's ask God's Spirit's help. Living God, even now, as your church is gathered in the name of Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners, we ask great things of a great Savior. So now, let Satan's captives be released. Even now, bring the prodigal daughters and sons home. Even now, Lord, humble the self-righteous and open the blind eyes and grant true repentance so that your church has the joy of salvation in Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners. Amen. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey knows its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, only bruises and sores and raw wounds. They're not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field in a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me and I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen, for your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has 
spoken. So here in Isaiah 1, we must talk together, you and I, about sin. Someone said it this way. Years ago, years ago, men and women would blush if they were embarrassed or ashamed of something that they had done. But today, in postmodern 2022 United States of America, men and women are embarrassed and ashamed if they ever blush at anything because you're not allowed to be ashamed of anything, certainly of any sin. Sin is so commonplace. And approval of sin is expected in polite society. And non-judgmentalism about sin is an ironclad law of communication in the United States of America. And so we parade our perversions and we celebrate our abortions and we flaunt our anti-everything rebellious attitude. And as a culture, we punish those who are not silent about the sinfulness of sin. We punish those who insist on declaring that the biblical revelation of reality and sexual morality is what it is. And as we talk about sin, if I talk about sin to you for the next few moments, and you stay on sort of what I just talked about, how in society we celebrate perversion and our society is so messed up, if that's what you keep thinking about, then all I've done is throw this, the dart of this sermon at the outer ring. I want to hit the bullseye. And the bullseye is not that you would leave here thinking about how messed up our culture is. You know what the, you, you know what the bullseye is. That's your sin. It's your sin. That's the bullseye. And I don't want you to leave only with three or four darts in the outer ring. Of course, our culture's important. The culture's downstream from the church. Start with the house of God. So as we look together at what sin is, and Isaiah shows us he's not going to be easy on us. First, we see that sin is contrary to nature. Verse 2, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. We start with a protest. <clears throat> and Isaiah is going to be <clears throat> shocked and astonished about sin. And so in his shock and his protest, he wants to call a witness. You all have a, you all, each one of you has a family member who whenever they see something amazing, they have to call everybody, did you see that? Can you get a look at that? And they call, they just want everybody to see this amazing thing that they saw. <clears throat> Isaiah is astonished and amazed at our sinfulness. And the only witness that is large enough for him to call is all of the heavens and all of the earth. So I ask you, from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2, how could Isaiah begin heavier and deeper than he begins? For myself, I cannot think of a way. 
and let the irony of the poetry capture your imagination. He says to the heavens, give ear. And he says to the earth, give ear. You know, the heavens don't have ears. And the earth doesn't have eyes or ears. But human beings have ears. And isn't part of the irony of the poetry that he's saying, you who were created in the image of God and given a heart to feel and know and ears to hear, you have turned a deaf ear to the God who created you. And yet the heavens, which do not have ears, the, the stars in their courses, they don't sin. They obey the maker who created them. From the time Isaiah wrote this until today, if all the GPS stuff failed, th those who are on the ocean who know what they're doing can navigate by the stars in their courses. Not a one of them goes off course from where the Creator tells them to go. They don't have hearts, they don't have ears, they don't have eyes, and yet they obey their Creator. And here we are, God's people, and we have turned a blind eye to God's law We've trampled the orphan and the widow in the dust of our greed, and we have refused to hear the voice of the Lord. Sin is contrary to nature. I hope you feel the sting of the end of verse 2. God says, I brought you up. I changed your nappies. I cooked your food and you've rebelled against me. And I hope you feel the sting of verse 3. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. Here the living God says to you, you make a mule look intelligent. That's a deep burn in the Hebrew. That's a sick burn. Animals are dumb animals. And even when it comes to animals... There are smart animals, a dolphin maybe, an eagle, and there are dumb animals. Some of you like to tell me that your cat is smart, and I like to not like you anymore. And some of you, like me, you have a dog, and you just go ahead and admit, my dog, dumb. His elevator doesn't go to the top. He's just not all there. Just admit it. Just be honest. Isaiah says... He, he doesn't compare you to a smart animal or even a dumb animal. The lowest of the animals, the mule, the donkey. Sin makes you stupid. And he says in verse 4, O sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. That middle line kills me where he says, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. Forsaken and despised. Those two words break my heart. And I think I can say they break God's heart. They've forsaken and despised the Lord. Just think, just, I, I wish you could just see and, and think about what this is saying. He's saying, when you sin, you treat God, the loving Father, 
You treat the loving Father as a problem to be avoided and an issue to be worked around. How could you do that? How could you forsake and despise Him? How stupid sin makes you. We would say it's like you're hungry, almost starving. And you're at Chick-fil-A, and it's not Sunday. It's Monday, so the place is open. And you've got a gift card for $35, and you can smell the food, and they're all saying, it will be my pleasure to serve you because they're the greatest employees in history. And all you can do is sit on the gutter outside of the restaurant and weep about how hungry you are and avoid going into the place. Why would you do that? God asks why in verse 5. Why would you do that? Why would you forsake and despise the God who could rescue you from your sin? To forsake the Lord is the opposite of seeking the Lord. And seeking the Lord is not finding the Lord because he was lost. Seeking the Lord is seeking to have close fellowship with him. Seeking not to avoid him, but seeking to be near him. To forsake sin is to seek to put deliberate distance between you and sin. To forsake the Lord is to seek to put deliberate distance between you and the Lord. So back to the animal illustration, if we could. If you have a dog, like we do, there's usually one member of the family that that dog wants to be in the room that that family member is in. With us, with our dog Chester, that person is Amy. If I'm in one part of the house and Amy is in another part of the house, you will not find Chester in the room with me ever. He just wants to be in the room where she is. He says in verse 4, you are God's children but you've forsaken and despised him and you're trying to be as utterly far from him as you can get. So here's a question from a pastor's heart directly to your heart. Please receive this question and please answer this question if you care about your soul. If I could ask God, I can't, but if I could, and I could use your name, and I could say, God, has she been seeking you? Or God, has she been avoiding you? What would God say? If I could ask God, has, has he been distancing himself from you? Or has he been eagerly moving into the room where he knows he can meet with you every day? Which one is it? Sins contrary to nature. We also see in verses 5 through 8 that sin's contrary to reason. Sin makes you stupid. God says, why will you be struck down? And then he says in verse 5, the whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint, from the sole of the foot even to the top of the head. We like to think that Though we are sinners, comma, we like to think that though we are sinners, comma, there's a part of us that we can improve on. There's a part of us that isn't all the way gone. 
You like to think, well, I may be a sinner, but my sin is small potatoes compared to that kind of sin. And God says, God says, how dare you? God says, where in this book did I tell you to index your sin to your neighbor's sin? God says, on every page of this book, I told you to index your sin to me and my holiness. So how dare you say your sin's not that bad? We like to say or think, ah, I know I sin, but at least my mind is still pretty clean. And the Spirit of God says, no, your mind is inexplicably filthy. And we like to think, I may sin, but, you know, most of the time my intentions are good. And the Spirit of God says, no, they aren't. You don't even understand how twisted and perverted your intentions are. And God asks this, I've been thinking about this one all week. God asks, why? You see that in verse 5? Why will you be struck down? That stuns me. Whenever God asks a question, beloved, it is a dramatic event. Whenever God asks a question, the living God is making a point that he knows he couldn't make to people like us in any other way than to ask a question. Because when God asks a question, come on, he ain't asking from a standpoint of trying to figure anything out. God's not asking a question from a standpoint of ignorance. Could you please, could you please fill in what I'm lacking in my mental picture of the universe? God's not asking because he needs us to teach him anything. He's asking as an ironic statement of educational value. Or it may be that he's asking almost as a, as a pathetic, ironic sob out of his heart. Why do you want to die? Like Ezekiel says. You know this if you've raised kids. I mean little kids. Like when, when one of our little ones, don't ask why this was in the house, when one of our little ones picked up a bucket of paint that had the lid off of it and just dumped it onto the carpet. And we said, why did you do that? <laughs> why did you do that? You don't, you don't have to have raised kids. You don't have to be a parent to understand how this works. If you're a good friend, if you're a good friend, and you see your friend making a bad mistake, if you're a good friend, you ask them, well, what do you think's going to happen if you keep going down that path? Why, why do you think that that's going to turn out all right? We ask why. Now, at least in, in our case, now we're older and our hair is getting a little gray, and our kids are all out of the house. They're adults, and they're making, certainly making their own choices, but we, we sometimes want to cry out, why are you making the choices that you're making? And our cry isn't like so much anger and frustration, though there's anger and frustration in it. Our cry is almost like that heartbreak of, I, I can see where that choice will end you up. Why will you do that to yourself when there's something so much better? Why would you want that for yourself? I don't know the heart of God, but I know that I trust that God's heart does feel justifiable wrath and anger against sin, 
I also think God's heart feels a pathetic compassion of why would you die? This is Jesus up over Jerusalem. How often I would have rescued you and gathered you to me, but you were unwilling. God asks why. Why will you continue in sin? Why will you die when there's life here? There's a hint. I mean, we read it even in our worship service about though your sins are scarlet, they'll be white as snow. But there's even a hint of it in verse 6. Did you see it? At the end of verse 6, he says, there is a way for wounds to be bound up and softened with oil. There is medicine. Oh, beloved, there is a balm in Gilead that can heal every heart. Sin's contrary to reason. Verses 9 to 15, sin is contrary to external religion. We read this even during our singing time, appropriately so, <coughs> because God says, why are you going to sing and, and drop your money in the offering plate when your heart's far from me? Look at verse 11. I like the frankness of the ESV translation here. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough, God says. I've had enough of your burnt offerings and the fat of well-fed beasts. God says, I've had it up to here, and I'm done. Church attendance, worship, giving in the offering, these can be precious and valuable. They can also be worthless and obnoxious. They can be precious and valuable if the heart has ears to hear and eyes to see the greatness of God and the reality of repentance. They can be obnoxious and awful if the heart and the, the ears and the eyes of the heart are deaf and blind to the reality of God. And so Isaiah is going to go on to say in Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 13. Isaiah is going to go on to say in Isaiah 29 and verse 13, because this people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, yet their heart is far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. This is a theme throughout the prophets. Listen to how it is said in Amos chapter 5, verse 21. You can just listen to me read it because if you can turn to Amos quickly, you are boss level in your Bible skills. Amos 5, verse 21, God says, I hate your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Amos 5, 22, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offering of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But the Lord says, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. He doesn't want nice-sounding music from people whose greedy hearts keep everything and don't share in a Christ-like way with their needy neighbors. You maybe have heard before how Micah puts it in Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. 
Micah 6, verses 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with a burnt offering, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions? He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. God prizes humility. God prizes humility of heart. Church attendance is good. Having a quiet time is good if your heart's there. And so if I could, if I could get inside of your heart with another pastoral question that I'm begging you to answer in, in humility and reality before the Lord, if I could ask the Holy Spirit, I can't. But if I could ask the Holy Spirit because, never forget this, the Holy Spirit of the living God is the only one in this room who knows your heart. I don't know your heart, and you don't know your heart. If I could ask the Holy Spirit of God, when she comes to church, does she come to be corrected by you, O Lord? Or does she come to correct and judge everybody else? If I could ask the Holy Spirit of God, when he comes to church, Spirit of God, is his heart crying out, fix me, I am the problem? Or is his heart crying out like it has been all week with all the problems external to himself that he wants you to fix? Sin is contrary to external religion. But then in verses 16 to 18, we have an invitation to repentance. We have an invitation to salvation and repentance in verses 16 through 18. And we have an invitation even to decision in verses 19 to 20. Verses 16 and 17, he says, wash, make yourself clean, remove the evil deeds, cease to do evil, learn to do good. There are nine imperatives in verses 16 and 17. I count two imperatives in verse 10 where he said, hear the word of the Lord and give ear to the teaching of our God. So two imperatives precede this, and then there are nine right here in a row in verses 16 and 17. Notice that it's called, it, notice that what repentance looks like is correcting oppression, end of verse 17, bringing justice to the orphan and pleading the widow's cause. That is, in the, in the important revelation of the Hebrew prophets, in verse, two, in verse 2, sin is called rebellion. In verse 4, it's called sin and it's called iniquity. But here, in verse 17, it's detailed as a a sort of a societal greed that causes the propagation of injustices. The widow and the orphan become victims instead of becoming protected, and that matters to God. I think we said in our introductory lesson, you're, not, you're never going to understand the prophets until you understand the law of God because the prophets apply the law of God to the societal uh, position and time that they're in. And the law of God in Exodus itself, 
God gave a wonderful way for every orphan to be cared for and every widow to be cared for. But the people got stuck defying that law and instead greedily refusing to follow that law that would have dealt with injustice. They wouldn't follow the law. God says it does come down to what you do with your time, what you do with your worship, what you do with your money, what you do with your everything. And then if I could direct your attention to three, three simple words in the end of verse 16 and the beginning of verse 17, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice. If I could grab those three words from the ESV, cease, learn, and seek. If I could ask you to circle those words or write down those three words, first cease or stop. The Lord gives you a command to stop. Second, learn. Develop a new mind. Get back into the law of God and rediscover what it is God is calling you to do. And then third, seek. Once you've repented and stopped, once you've learned what's right, then pursue what's right and seek it. So if I could challenge you with this pastoral question just out of those three words, if I could challenge you to journal this today, this week, those three words, first, cease. Living God, what is it in my life that you want me to make a clean break from? You want me to cease. You command me to stop. Absolute abandonment, self-denial of the old ways. Second, learn. Learn to do good. God, what is it that you want me to understand deeper from your word, to grow a new mind, to grow in knowledge? <clears throat> and then thirdly, seek. That is, ask the Lord, what's a new objective, a new habit, a new practice that you want me to put in my life? This is the invitation to repentance. There's an invitation to salvation in verse 18. What an amazing intervention. God says, come. God demands you to repent, to stop doing evil and to seek justice, but at its, at its heart, do not miss this, folks. At its heart, the gospel call is a call to come to Jesus, to come to Jesus. If you stop this particular sin and you never come to Jesus, you're not saved. If you come to Jesus, there is salvation. The gospel call is a call to come to him. This is an amazing intervention. At the very point where God says, even your worship services are just full of blood and I'm sick of them, God doesn't end the tirade there. He says, come now, let us reason together and I will save you. Your sin can be wiped out. Your sin can be washed away. In verse 27, we'll find the marvelous word redemption. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her, her who repent by righteousness. This redemption will be made much more specific in Isaiah 52 and 53 in the suffering servant, but it's right here, the Son of God in our place. And then there's an invitation to a decision. Notice how he says in verse 19, if you are willing, and notice how he says in verse 20, but if you refuse. Verse 19, if you are willing and obedient, dot, dot, dot. Verse 20, but if you refuse and rebel. So which will you choose? 
Isaiah gives a life-giving message here of repentance over sin. Which will you choose? Can I give you, can I give you in our closing moments three pastoral words about sin? Three pastoral words about sin. Number one, fear sin more than you fear suffering. Man, you'll be a better human being and a much better Christian if you get this. Fear sin more than you fear suffering. Settle in your convictions that sinning is far worse than suffering. And you may do a certain amount of workarounds in your life so that you don't suffer, but you will never work around so that you can give yourself opportunity to sin. I read sermons regularly because due to uh, professional obligations, I don't listen to a sermon on Sunday. So I, I always listen to uh, at least two sermons during the week on my jog, and I always read at least two because I want to be in that discipline of sitting under the Word of God. And I listened to two or three sermons and read two or three sermons the last two weeks about sin. And one of them was a, from a Puritan pastor, and this was in the first paragraph of the sermon. He said this to his people, You are so sensitive to the troubles of suffering, and you are so insensitive to the evils of sin. You're so sensitive to the troubles of suffering, and yet you're so insensitive to the evils of sin. And I thought, that's so true. If there's one ant, if there's one little ant crawling on my arm, I'm going I'm to get the heebie-jeebies and get it off. I'm so sensitive to the least physical discomforts. If there's one insect bite, like on the back, back of your shoulder that you just quite can't scratch, it's going to drive you crazy. And oh, if there's one bit of cheese popcorn stuck behind your tooth, you will work that thing and work. You're so sensitive to the difficulties of physical suffering. And yet you are so insensitive to the evils of sin. In the last paragraph of that sermon that absolutely slayed me, he said this to his people. If you really knew what the guilt of your sin was and you saw when you lay in your bed at night what wrath you had been storing up all day long, you would rather wonder why you are not in hell this instant than ever murmur about any little troubles in your life anymore. Make a settled conviction, church, that you will fear sin far more than you fear suffering. If I could give you a second pastoral word about sin that'll make you a much better human being, a much better Christian, it's this. Sin makes you stupid. So don't trust yourself with your sin. Sin makes you stupid. So don't trust yourself with your sin. Sin makes you crazy. Sin makes you irrational. Sin makes you the... the the, like, I think it's in Ephesians 4. He, he's, I don't know if he's channeling Isaiah's language here, but he says, they're darkened in their understanding, in the futility of their minds, in the hardness of their heart, they're given over to the lusts of their flesh. Sin is unable to draw the right conclusions about reality. Hello? Sin is unable to draw the right conclusions about reality. Sin is a stubborn stupidity. Sin is an ignorance that is multiplied by arrogance. 
If you are ignorant and you are not arrogant, brother, there is hope for you. If you're ignorant and you have ears to hear, let's go. Let's go. We'll get there. But if you are ignorant and arrogant, I'm not saying this flippantly, but I'm saying this in reality. I love you and there's nothing I can do for you. Sin makes you stupid. I'm not the only one who could say this. Many of our elders and church members could say this, but I can say this dozens of times over the years. I have met with a professing believer, a a, a Bible teacher, who because he was so locked in his sin, passages that he used to use and teach and apply to other people's lives, he just runs circles around them about how they don't apply to him in this situation because he's really in love and, you know. Every sinner thinks they're the exception to God's holy book, and they are not. They are not. Sin makes you stupid, so don't trust yourself in your sin. And the third pastoral word about sin, whenever you sin, you have two choices. So please make the right one. Whenever you sin, you have two choices. I'm begging you to make the right one. Whenever you sin, whenever you do something really foolish, whenever you do something you regret, whenever you sin, you have two choices. Run to Jesus or run away. Whenever you sin, you have two choices. Run to Jesus, run to the light, or try to run away and try to hide from the light. Whenever you sin, you have two choices. Tell it to Jesus. I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus alone. Whenever you sin, you have two choices. Tell Jesus or deny it and double down in some sort of idiotic putting your head in the sand. Psalm 32, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. First John, when we say we have no sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his sin will not prosper, but whoever forsakes it will find compassion. Beloved, whenever you sin, you have two choices, so make the right one, because whenever you sin, one of your choices is this. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they can be, they shall be white as snow. I'm here to tell you there is forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no longer any remaining guilt and condemnation and shame for you. No matter what you have done, no matter where and when you have done it, there is forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the blood of the Son of God, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So receive these words of conviction over sin as a life-saving injury as a very love of God. Let's pray. You bow for prayer. I just give you just a tiny moment to lift up your heart to the living God. God says, cease from your evil ways. Is there something that you know you need to stop?
Is there one thing that you know you need to let go of and run from and not hold on to anymore? Say, God, give me strength by your spirit to cease doing evil. And the living God says, seek me and you will find me. Seek to do my word. Seek to walk in the light and I will enable you. So I'd give you just a moment to say, God, help me to seek you. God, help me to reach out my hands so that you can rescue me. Heavenly Father, hear your children as they pray. And hearing, forgive. Wash us. Make us white as snow. Redeem us by your very blood that we might rejoice being saved by such a glorious God and Savior. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.